0: good morning if uh, we haven't met yet my name is aj i've been coming here since october of last year Uh, my wife heather and i we moved to calgary uh, from vancouver about four years ago and we've both been working at the dream center ever since i oversee our men's 49-day recovery program and my wife oversees the social enterprise department of the dream center her current project Uh, Is called Change is Good, which is a boutique thrift store, and it's located in Inglewood. So that's what she's been working on for the last year or so. I'm honored to be here with you this morning to continue in our series World Upside Down as we continue to look at the disruptive nature of the spirit as seen in the lives of the early Christians in the book of Acts. This morning, we'll be finding ourselves in chapter 9. So if you have a Bible or a device, you can go ahead and turn there now. It will also be up on the screen if you don't. I'd like to open us up with prayer this morning, so if you're comfortable, I invite you to join me in that. Father, by your Spirit, may our ears be open to hear what you might speak to us collectively and individually this morning. Quiet our minds and spirits so that we might hear the whispers of your voice and maybe be receptive to the work of your spirit, amen. Pastor and author A.W. Tozer wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Tozer writes this because the way that we think about God, how we understand God will shape who we are How we live, how we treat ourselves, how we treat each other, and how we treat the world. We're formed by that which we gaze upon, by that which we behold. That which we behold shapes us. I grew up in the church as a pastor's kid out in Richmond and DC, and so I've always had this sense of, of a belief in God of some sort. I've always had this understanding that God exists, that God is there. But how I understand God today looks a whole lot different than how I understood God when I was five. And I'm sure that most of us in the room, whether we've been following God for 50 years or five days or five months, our perception of God is always shifting and changing, even from day-to-day, moment-to-moment. How we understand God will change. How people in general understand God is hardly unanimous. We see this in the various religions around the world. We see this in the thousands and thousands of denominations in the Christian faith. For some, God is kind and beautiful and good and loving. For others, he is holy, punitive, and angry, doesn't like people. And maybe for some, God is both of those things together. In the book, How God Changes Your Brain, by medical doctors Andrew Newberg and Mark Robert Waldman. They share a study that was done by Baylor University. They were studying what kinds of God people believe in. What are the kinds of gods that people believe in? The the research identified four different gods, an authoritarian God, a critical God, a distant God, and a benevolent God. 32% believe in the authoritarian God. This God is angry. He wants to punish the wicked, and he's the cause of natural disasters. 16% believe in the critical God. This God doesn't punish people today, but ultimately can't stand humanity and wants to punish us when we die. According to the authors, the amount, those two beliefs reflect the underlying pessimism about the human condition and the moral state of the world. The distant God came in with 24%. The distant God is entirely uninvolved in the world, doesn't really have anything to do with us, just kind of holds everything together as a cosmic force. And then we have the benevolent God, which came in at 23%. This God is gentle and loving. He's active, responds to prayer, cares about suffering. And I'd like to think that this is the God that we believe in. However, only one quarter of Catholics... Mainline Protestants and evangelicals actually believe in a God who is benevolent. But are any of these four gods the God that is revealed in Jesus? Is it one or the other? Is it all of them together? What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The authors of the book of that book, How God Changes Your Brain, conclude that the personality that we assign to God has distinct neural patterns that correlate to our own emotional style of behavior. Those who believe in authoritarian God tend to support the death penalty, want more money invested in the military, and want a harsher fight on terrorism. The authoritarian view of God primes the brain to fight. When we behold the authoritarian God, it puts us into the mode of fighting. It activates the limbic part of our brain, which is responsible for fear and anger. On the other hand, the benevolent God activates the prefrontal cortex. Specifically, it activates the anterior cingulate, which is activated through loving and compassionate images, faces, or thoughts. That part of the brain suppresses the impulse to be angry and afraid, and it helps create feelings of empathy towards those who are hurt And suffering. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what then does Acts have to tell us about God? So far in our study of Acts, we've learned that God is forming a church and that this God who's forming this church is the God who pursues, that this God is the one who welcomes in the unlikely, that this spirit disrupts our boxes of who is in and who is out. So as we continue our study this morning in Acts chapter 9, we will see the ways in which the Spirit continues to disrupt the early church and the world around them as Luke introduces us once again to Saul. We were first introduced to Saul at the end of chapter 7 during the murder of Stephen. Everyone laid their cloaks at his feet, and we discover a few verses later that Saul approved and agreed with the murder of Stephen. Stephen. And then we see that Saul is a key figure in the persecution of the early church, and then we get to chapter 9, where he reintroduces us, where Luke reintroduces us to Saul as he continues to write about the Spirit and what he's doing in the world, this time in the life of an unlikely character. So let's start reading in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So Luke starts off by saying, meanwhile, so everything that's happening previously in chapter eight with the eunuch and Simon and all that, while that's all taking place, we have Saul who is operating here and he's killing and persecuting in the name of God. He's threatened by those who belong to the way, so threatened that it leads him to violence. The people of the way, the followers of Jesus, are seemingly outside of Saul's circle, and so are the teachings, uh, so are their teachings and the one they claim to follow. Verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Now one would think that to have your name called and then to be asked the question, why do you persecute me, would lead to a divine judgment. But instead, Saul is called to serve those he is trying to imprison and eventually kill. Verse 7. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to you, to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. So Ananias knows of Saul. He knows he is a killer. But then the Lord responds, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placed his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, Something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Two people, two visions, two encounters, and things changed. Who is this God that they encounter? Now they both to varying degrees have are operating in certitude and closed circles, one more than the other. But both of them, through their encounter with the living Jesus, have their circles disrupted and opened up. So we'll start with Saul. Ready to go on mission and to arrest the followers of Jesus and drag them all the way from Damascus back to Jerusalem. He believes that God is affirming what he's doing. That God supports him in his journey. And he sets off on this journey, but as Willie James Jennings, a commentator that has been often quoted in the series, points out, the Damascus road has changed unbeknownst to Saul. The Damascus road is now inhabited by the wayfaring spirit of the Lord, and Saul the pursuer is actually being pursued. So begins the opening of Saul's circles. So begins the breaking of Saul's boxes about what is possible and who is included by God. The undoing of Saul's opposition, of his oppression and his violence, rooted in his certitude and his devotion to what he thinks God is doing. This portion of scripture is often understood to be Saul's conversion. We know most of us are more familiar with Saul as Paul. Uh, so is it a conversion? Yes and no, it depends. If we only think of conversion as one religion to another or no religion to a religion, then it is not a conversion. Saul was not persecuting another religion. Rather, what he saw the people of the way was actually a heretical sect within Judaism. It wasn't another religion at that point. So on this point, scholar Klaus Hacker says, Rabbinic Judaism did not follow this militant line, which had contributed to leading Israel into repeated catastrophes of rebellion against the Romans. It had been the Judaism of Paul himself And of his equals, which called for action in order to free Israel from God's impending anger. In other words, it was not Judaism itself that caused the persecution of the followers of the way. It was Saul's and his equals. It was their conception of what God was like, of what they think God is like, and what God required of them to do. Saul was serving what was comfortable, he was serving the status quo. He was upholding an institution that agreed with his certainties and his belief system so saul sets out not knowing that on that damascus road there was one waiting for him that on that road his world would be turned upside down and that in on that road he would be arrested by the spirit of god and it is there that saul is converted if we define it by my, as michael gorman defines conversion A radical reorientation of one's fundamental commitment that is expressed in three things. Convictions or belief, conduct or behavior, community affiliation or belonging. This is what took place to Paul on that road. And for Saul to discover this, for Saul to be encountered with a Jesus who is alive, means that God raised him from the dead. And if God raised Jesus from the dead, that means everything that Jesus stood for and taught was vindicated by God. Meaning... Saul had to reorient his entire belief system around Jesus. He had to take a new lens of how he was to understand his beliefs. Saul isn't the only one that had that encounter, though, where things changed. And Ananias Ananias is already a disciple of Jesus. He's already encountered by the living Jesus. He's already had his world changed, and turned upside down, and shaken. And as Ananias is called to minister to Saul, it requires that he shifts his perspective. It requires that he make a change. It requires a dismantling of his certitudes, and it requires that he receive the eyes of God. It requires that he start to see through God. Ananias knew Saul's a killer, But as Beverly Gaventa points out to us in her commentary, Jesus declares Saul as an instrument for his name. Saul's past and his reputation are no more in the eyes of God. The persecutor now bears the name of God. The one who does evil in the name now becomes the one who must suffer for the name. And Ananias is called to open up his closed circle and step into that reality to see with God, to see through God, to see the one who is dangerous as one who has a future. A future, in the beautifully written words of Jennings, a future drenched in divine desire. A future drenched in divine desire. Ananias, already encountered by Jesus, already having his world changed, had to let go of his certainties of who could come in, of who was acceptable, and how someone might change. And in doing so, he had the ability to partner with God in an incredible opportunity. So in a moment, in one encounter, Saul and Ananias met the God revealed in Jesus, a God who is one who breaks open our circles, disrupts our certitudes, and calls humanity into new possibilities. They met a God who was revealed in Jesus who pursues enemies, a God revealed in Jesus who identifies with the persecuted and the oppressed, a God revealed in Jesus who welcomes in all, including the persecutor and the oppressor. Once again, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It determines how we live. It determines who we welcome in. It determines how we act. So we're gonna pause here. And I'm gonna invite you in to do a little thought experiment and reflection. And when we finish, we'll open it up for dialogue uh, where you can have ask questions or reflections or comments on what we've talked about so far, so far or reflect on the exercise that we're gonna do. So if you're comfortable, why don't you close your eyes this morning And with your eyes closed, think about a place where you would like to meet with God. If you were to meet God one on one, where would that place be? It can be any any place that you want. Where would you go? Once you have that place, if God was to meet with you there, how would he come? How would he come to meet with you there? And if you can see his face... If you could see his face, what would the expression on his face be? What would his eyes be saying to you? What would the first thing that he might say to you be? God has come to you this morning with words or expression of disappointment or frustration towards you, telling you that you need to do more, whatever it might be, then that's not the Father that Jesus revealed. But he's happy to expose that this morning. So I'm grateful if he's brought that false image into the light. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the Lord Jesus to come and remove that false image. So as I pray, just watch and see what he does. Jesus, thank you for those in the room, for exposing any false image we have of what the Father is like. I pray that that image would be brought into the light and that who you are would come and be revealed this morning. That you would come and remove that false perception of what you are like and show us who you truly are. And Jesus, if there's anything else you would like to say this morning, I ask that you would just speak, that you would tell us what the good news is, In Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're just going to open it up for dialogue. So, as a reminder, some of the questions uh, that you can sit and wait with are where is there some conflict for you in this teaching? Where is there some confusion for you in this teaching? And where is there some clarity for you in this teaching this morning? But also, any comments or reflections. Um, but just let's just pay attention to what the Spirit might be doing, if there's anything prompting you. Um, feel free to share that. We have a couple people with mics, and Phil will be with me as well.
1: Thanks for that beautiful teaching, AJ. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll wait, but don't hesitate if you have something on your heart. We may start randomly pointing out people <laughs> if no questions come forward. I'm <laughs>
0: yeah. um, going back that, that you're talking about. Um, this is just about that study that was done. Yeah.
2: To believe in a benevolent God, and yet a lot of us did not grow up with benevolent parents, and I think how you are parented really influences how you perceive God.
1: And if you aren't, like, theoretically believing in a benevolent God is important, but if you don't actually have tangible, like, childhood memories of a benevolent parent, how do you overcome that?
0: Yeah, thank you. Um... I think that the way that we might overcome that, and it could look different for everyone, but is to um, continually come to Jesus and to ask, continually ask him to show us what the Father is like, and to continually do what we just did and asking for God to remove any of those images that might be less than what jesus revealed or different than the god that jesus revealed in, and we can come to him and ask him to over time show us um, who he who he is but and i'll get into this a little bit when we as we close but i think our tendency is actually as humans to not believe in the god who is kind and loving and revealed in jesus that i think the god who wants demands of us Um, Is actually the God that itches our ears and it's easier to believe in a God like that. And so it does take time um, for that to shift especially if that's the perception that we were given growing up from our parents or even from the church communities that we may have grown up in. Um, Yeah, you have anything to add?
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, One of the questions uh, and I would say that that's primary in prayer is where God begins to shape our imaginations rightfully. Um, One of the questions that I, in practices that I've done, I've learned this from a guy named Bob Ekblad, Uh, and Bob reads scripture with gang members, with prisoners, with people caught in addiction, like yourself, Uh, he's not caught in addiction, he works with people caught in addiction, (laughs) let me just clarify that. that I'm aware of, um, is there anything you want to tell us this morning? Uh, anyway, um, and and one of the things that I've learned, one of the questions that I've started bringing to the text is, is simply this: what is God like? And it's amazing uh, when you use that as a framing question, um, how you begin to look at the text and you over you you see things for the first time that you overlooked. And we have a tendency, as you just said, to almost want a vindictive God, want a, a you know, um, and yet we we see these different things. I think of the creation narrative and, um, <laughs> for example, where it talks about the ground um, that, that is cursed because of you and be, being the human. And it's easy for us to read that as like, oh, God cursed the ground, at, you know, when this happened, all these different things. But we read with fresh eyes, and I would say with fresh people. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of times, if we're reading the scriptures only with people who are like us, maybe grew up together, we're gonna keep (laughs) bringing the same um, questions and having the same outlook. And this is one of the beauties for me of interfaith work is some of my Muslim students, for example, will ask me questions that Christians just take for granted. And they're really good questions, and they make me look at the text again. So I guess what I would say is um, read that in mind of what is God like as Christians specifically. We talked about this in the first service. Um, What does it mean to read through the lens of Jesus into this text? And then to surround ourselves with people who are different from us. um, Because they'll bring new questions of the text to us and maybe open our eyes to see things that we didn't see before, which will lead us into really beautiful spaces, I think. So... That's a, a fantastic question. Really, really good. Are there any other questions here this morning?
0: Uh, good morning. It's on? Okay. Sorry. Who? Um, thank you for the sermon, it was beautiful. I just, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but going back to that uh, study in the book you referenced, and I was interested when you were talking about the folks who view God as authoritarian and how that kind of shaped their worldviews, like supporting the death penalty and so on. So I'm curious what the benevolent, the people who see God as benevolent, how that shaped their, their worldviews in contrast to those who see God as authoritarian. Yeah, I'm trying to think back to the book um, and what they kind of pulled out from that. Um, I can't remember anything specifically of what the authors said in specifically to that, um, but it was in con- it was very much in contrast to what the authoritarian um, people who believe in an authoritarian God believe. I believe they, they talked about how people who had that benevolent God um, tended to... Um, care for people more who were marginalized, to care for creation more, um, and to uh, just allow them to better see through, um, put themselves in other people's shoes to understand what people were going through, um, and open themselves up to being around people who were different were some of the things um, that were pointed out, so yeah.
1: Well, and so I would just ask ask you, AJ, you work with people in addiction, Um, how has that changed your view of God and, um, I guess the way that you read scripture, the, you know, your, it, just the orientation of your life around Jesus? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think I've learned, I feel like I've learned more of my, what has shaped more of my theology and my faith and how I look to Jesus and how I read scripture, um, as Phil was, was pointing out earlier. Um, has been shaped so much by the people that I've worked with. Um, Caught in addiction or caught, uh, I used to live in Vancouver and I worked with people on the street in Vancouver. And so that, seeing how people encountered God on the street and how their relationships with Jesus, even though it doesn't look like how we might think it should, um, has completely just changed how I understand. Um, And one of the biggest things that I've understood is when we're made in the image of God, that word can be understood as icon. And and we're all little icons or idols of what God was like. We we're supposed to be made in that, and how I understand people in that is that we're all just kind of cracked and and broken a little bit, images of God. And together we help each other in community form back one another to look more like God again. And so how I so that takes me into the work that I do um, as just partnering with the Spirit to. Just find what it looks like God in people and pull that out of them and I think that's been shaped through how I understand God to be as revealed in Jesus as kind and benevolent whereas in the past I held a very um, authoritarian view of God and I was not kind per- I was not a kind person um, I focus entirely on the wrath and hell and uh, fire and brimstone and I wasn't kind I wasn't um, I didn't serve the people that I worked with on the street. I came at them instead of came towards them to wash their feet, in a sense, to use that imagery. So that's how my view of God has been shaped through that.
1: Wow, that's beautiful. Is there another another question this morning? Comment? All right. And can we, sorry, can we have a little bit more monitor? I'm having a slight difficulty hearing.
2: If you really, God wants us to come as children. And having a special needs daughter has taught me so much about God. Have a conversation um, with, with a child or with someone with special needs whose cognitive ability is much lower than your own. You will come away with a different concept of who God
0: is. Yeah, thank
1: you for sharing that. Uh, we do have another question. I want to just uh, thank you for sharing that so much. Um, I, You know, we've been talking about the gifts of the Spirit and in Acts. And, and here's, the, here's the thing. Um, if we really press that, and I believe we absolutely must, this means... Um, that we will begin to allow the special needs people in our community to speak prophetically to us and that we must be open to the voice of the children, to the voice of the special needs community, to the voice of the minority community and sometimes in our contexts in the West, we need to say into the voice of the elderly community as well. Oftentimes we have sent people away um i will try not to get preachy because aj's preaching this morning um but i read a story years ago where it talked about um this mother and she spent so much time getting her special needs son ready for a easter sunday service and they had an opening prayer and at the end um they said amen and he was so excited he made this loud noise at which point they came and they had ushers which um took them out of the sanctuary, and into a place where they could watch on TV because they wanted a distraction-free environment. And I would say that is because they had an improper view of who God is. And uh, I just, I really, really wanna thank you for bringing attention to that this morning, because the truth is, um, they will teach us how to, how to see God, and that means that we absolutely have to be open uh, to being distracted in this place because the spirit may distract us. We've been talking about disruption uh, and to allow also voice for those uh, who have that to prophesy in our midst. So, um, yes, that's too much for me.
2: But anyway, uh, we, have, we have one more question. And thank you. Yeah. Okay, there we are. Just a, a reminder how much we have to trust in God. When... Uh, Ananias, who would have been a brother of Stephen, who we only read two chapters earlier, was stoned with Paul standing at the side, and many other brothers and sisters and men and women and children um, persecuted, killed by Paul. Uh, how much that community must have had to trust in God with Paul their persecutor and murderer. How would we respond, you know, in that group of authoritarian or benevolent? They might well have been schooled in the authoritarian God, and yet we see how they welcomed him through miracles of God and dreams and visions, but trusting in God, regardless of whatever their background and experience was with this particular
0: man, so trust. Yeah, thank you. I think that's really, you know, Luke makes it so quick. It's just Ananias fights back a little bit, and then Jesus says, go, and he does. And I think that just speaks to his faith and to his trust. Like you were saying, in and how quickly he was able to open himself up to a new possibility, to be able to see um, what God can do. And I just think in our context, how quickly we are to um, people who... Are different or may have been harmful to the church or people in our own lives that have been harmful in different ways how you know we tell people to you got to check these boxes off before you can come in but we see with saul who yeah like you said had been a part of the stoning of stephen one of their brothers um was welcomed in by the spirit by jesus and Ananias had to take that step of faith and that trust to then partner with God in that. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out.
1: I have nothing to add because I'm speaking on that next week. So I'll hand it back to you, AJ. Thanks again, brother. Thank you.
0: So yeah, just to close us off this morning, uh, as I kind of said, our tendency as human beings is to believe in the God who is harsh or angry. And maybe that's through our experiences, or maybe that's through our church upbringing, or through the lens that we approach. But I do think that it's easier to believe in a God that is that way, a God where we have to earn our affection, that we have to earn belonging in, a God who supports our ideologies and who is in and who is out, our beliefs about others, just like Saul, a God who is inside of a closed circle, a God who creates boundary lines, because this is comfortable to us most often then we don't have to open up to people who are different than us and who have different experiences. We like certitude rather than things that are open-ended. Through Stephen's sermon, David pointed out to us a few weeks ago how We are prone to believing in the God who demands of us, who wants us to try harder to believe in a gospel that says we have to earn our place. But in order to let that go of that gospel, I think we need to be encountered by the God that is revealed in Jesus, who says you're already in, just like Saul. It is that God that is revealed in Jesus that says that, that says you're already in, and so is the person that you don't want to be in. If we don't encounter that God as revealed in Jesus, then we will be like Saul, and our certitudes are gonna lead us to violence through exclusion in our speech, in our actions, and in our thoughts. A God of our own making, a God that itches our ears, a God that looks like us and thinks like us is going to lead us to participation in systems of oppression and exploitation of people and of creation. The God that met Saul on the Damascus road and the God that pushed Ananias into the den of his perceived enemy is the God that's revealed in Jesus. And we could not make him up. We could not create Jesus on our own. He's uncreated. He's better and kinder and more loving than we could ever think he would be. It all comes down to Jesus. One scholar says, if Jesus is not God all the way down, then we are still lost in our own world with all its fantasies and illusions. We have no direct contact with God. We are hemmed in by our limited creaturely existence, now further corrupted by sin, and we do not know what God is really like. The God revealed in Jesus is less like the God who condoned soul's violence and a lot more like Jesus. The God that Mary declared scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, brings down the powerful from their thrones, lifts up the lowly, fills the hungry, and sends the rich away empty. God is not a God who condones violence towards others. God is not a God who condones the abuse of power over others. Instead, Jesus turns power upside down. Are we willing to continue to lean into the Spirit of God to have the image of, our image of God liberated from us to find our, our belief in God in Jesus? Does Jesus challenge us? Does Jesus call us towards those we think don't belong? Does Jesus turn our world upside down? Are we willing to be encountered by this Jesus? To have our closed circles open? To identify with the oppressed like Jesus did? To see ourselves and others as already in? To see with the eyes of Jesus? we need to go back to Jesus regularly, to saturate ourselves in the gospel so that we might be found by Jesus, that we might be experienced by Jesus, that we might be encountered by Jesus. Not to learn about Jesus, not to meet the God we think we already know, but to be known by him. To be arrested by the Spirit like Saul. Let's envision this morning what it might look like to come Sunday mornings with the expectation of disruption with the expectation to be gifted with an encounter by the spirit who disrupts and here's the good news despite our best and worst efforts even when we lean into our certainties that cause us to exclude or to be violent in our speech and our thoughts and our actions god is pursuing in our best and our worst efforts god is still pursuing us. Whatever view of God we have in this moment, God is pursuing us and he wants to meet with us. I'll end with this quote. If Jesus is forgiving, can God be any less so? If Jesus heals the sick, does God do any less? If Jesus battles the principalities and powers which imprison souls and minds, can less be said of God? If Jesus and God are one, and if to know Jesus is to know God, then any conception of God that doesn't look like Jesus is an idol. May you go in peace this week and be found by Jesus, and may your week be disrupted by the Spirit of God. Amen.